I'm going to start with a question today as I get ready to move into the book of Joel. What will it take for God to get your attention? What will it take for God to call you back to him and away from your self-sufficiency and your own paths and uh, your own distractions? Uh, Joel is a very short little book, just three chapters. But in this book, uh, the consequences for sin, the consequences for rebellion, the consequences for self-reliance, the consequences for just going through the motions um, escalate in this book. Just three little chapters, but they get worse and worse and worse. It's a book that really basically says God won't stop until he gets your attention. And so that's the question I want to start with today. Um, Joel is a book that really focuses on this idea of the day of the Lord. I'll talk about it a lot. But the day of the Lord um, is both a, a, a bad thing because it brings judgment, and it is a good thing because it brings blessing. The day of the Lord is the day the Lord shows up. Um, there's a word that's used in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is pakad. It means to visit. And when God visits, um, destinies change one way or the other. <laughs> destinies are going to change. If you are visited by God, it is going to be either judgment or it's going to be blessing. And he visits on the day of the Lord. And that's what Joel is talking about because there's going to be visitation from God. Um, Joel is going to remind us that, that God is exacting in the fulfillment of his promises, and that should terrify us and encourage us. Because God will do exactly what he says he will do. One of the fascinating things that I've really come to lock in on in studying Joel recently is this idea that Joel is nothing more than God doing what he said he was going to do very, very specifically. Um, Only three chapters in this book, but wow, it is jam-packed. Danny Hay says this, The prophet Joel packs a lot into this small book of three chapters. He spends the entire first chapter and part of the second chapter describing a horrendous locust plague. In chapters 2 and 3, speaks of the day of the Lord, a time filled with both judgment and deliverance. He also describes a marvelous future event when the Spirit of the Lord will be poured out on all God's people. Joel also calls for true repentance, telling God's people to rend their hearts and not just their garments. Return to the Lord your God, Joel exhorts, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Even the judgments that that God brings, the the locust plague and then invading army, are designed to turn us back to him because even in the midst of him trying to get our attention from all of our wanderings, he's always a gracious God who's wanting to turn us back to him. Um, Out at the Connection Center and online, I have two resources for you. Uh, One of them is uh, uh, the historical background of this period, and that's going to be tricky, you're going to see. It's very difficult to place where Joel is because he doesn't really mention any kings. He doesn't mention anybody for us to date it. It makes it a a challenge. Um, There's another article there, and it's really got two parts to it. One is on this day of the Lord thing, the day of Yahweh but also the spirit of Yahweh, which is going to get poured out in the day of Yahweh. When, when God shows up, he's going to show up. He will judge his enemies, and then he will pour out his spirit on those who are his people. 
And so that is uh, the two resources that are available for you. There's also a chart on the book that you'll see in just a minute. I'm going to take just a moment here to review some ideas about the nature of prophecy as well, because it becomes very important to understand this as we think about the day of the Lord and how it is fulfilled. Um, I've talked about this before, that, um, that prophecy is kind of like skipping a rock. Um, when the prophets deliver messages, and all of them do this, they deliver messages, and, and when they deliver the prophecy— Um, something will happen usually in the very near future that confirms this is really a prophet. So some either shadow fulfillment or partial fulfillment, or they will make a certain prediction that sets them up to make another prophetic prediction. But what is happening is is throughout time, um, these predictions are being fulfilled until there's a final fulfillment at the end. That's going to be very prominent in the book of Joel, because what we're going to see is a locust invasion. That's kind of the first skip of the rock. And that was, is something that's already happened. But what, what Joel does is he says, God said he's going to do things like this, and he's done it. Then he's going to look into the future, and he's going to say, there's going to be an invasion by the Babylonian army, maybe the Assyrian army as well. But for sure, the Babylonian army is going to invade. Now, what we don't know is how many more times the rock is going to skip until it's going to finally plunk. There may be another future fulfillment of of another disastrous time of visitation from the Lord. There may be another one until finally we reach this final eschaton fulfillment that's the last one that brings everything to a conclusion. So basically what Joel is doing is Joel is saying, the day of the Lord is coming, And the day of the Lord is going to bring judgment and blessing. And that may happen a number of times for God's people until finally the all big, all consuming consummation comes together when God will finally judge all of his enemies, death, hell, Satan, cast them into the lake of fire, and then bless his people and bring them into his presence to live forever. That's what's going on in this book. Now, Uh, To make sense of where we are, Joel um, is a short book, but he is um, what we're going to call a pre-exilic prophet to the southern kingdom. Let me explain that because the next three books we're going to get to are pre-exilic prophets to the northern kingdom. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, all are working with the northern kingdom, but not Joel. Okay, so here's how this fits together. There's a united kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon that lasts for about 120 years. Um, After the book of Judges, there's three kings that rule over this united kingdom. Saul leaves a divided kingdom, split into the north and the south, the north ruled by his army general, Jeroboam, the south ruled by his son, Rehoboam. Um, In the north, there are 19 kings, zero of them are any good. Part of that is because they're not near the temple. They've set up false centers of worship. Um, And that northern kingdom is called Israel, sometimes called Ephraim, uh, sometimes called Samaria, because that's where the capital moves to about 50 years after they start. The southern kingdom is Judah. Jerusalem is the center of that. Um, These are the two kingdoms, okay? The northern kingdom, because it is more apostate than the southern kingdom, there are a few revivals in the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom gets taken into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 BC. The southern kingdom gets taken into captivity um, by the Babylonians in 586 BC. If you'll remember, we're working towards zero, okay? Um, Now, um, 
all of this should be review for all of you. Uh, if you've been around, you should be going, yeah, I know that. Come on, m- move on, okay? But now I'm going to take this. I'm going to try to make some sense of it. Um, when we look at the writing prophets, there are a lot of other prophets who don't write books, like Elijah and Elisha. Um, perhaps Joel is a contemporary of Elisha. But there are these writing prophets, and we have this big group that are pre-exilic. They are before the Assyrians take the northern kingdom away and the Babylonians take the southern kingdom away. Okay? Then we have some uh, exilic prophets that prophesy. We've already looked at them, and they are uh, Daniel and Ezekiel. They prophesy during the exile, which lasts for 70 years from 605 to 536. We're eventually going to get at the end of the Old Testament to the post-exilic prophets who were there when they come back under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. Those are the post-exilic prophets. So we have pre-exilic, exilic, post-exilic. We've already looked at a few pre-exilic, the exilics. Now we're going back into some pre-exilics because that's how they are arranged in our English Bibles. Now, what we're going to do here is we're going to look at today a pre-exilic prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah And in particular, we're looking at this book, Joel. Now, as we think about looking at Joel, there's a couple of things that become um, a a bit of a challenge. And one of them is dating it. Because in these three chapters, he doesn't really mention anybody. Um, Last week, we saw Hosea mentioned all kinds of kings that makes it easy to go, okay, it's from this point to this point. Joel mentions no king. So there's two potential times when Joel may have been prophesying. He may have been a very early prophet, Or he may have been much later. And so we're going to have to figure all of that out, okay? Now, that's the setup. Three chapters, the day of the Lord, judgment and blessing. A locust plague, an army invasion, and then God blessing his people and taking vengeance on his enemies. That's the three chapters, okay? Putting that together, Bruce Wilkinson says it this way, Joel Joel uses a recent calamity in the nation of Judah to teach his hearers a prophetic lesson. A locust plague has invaded the land, destroying every green thing in its path. Grapevines are stripped clean, green fields lay bare, fruit trees stood leafless and unproductive. The devastation was so complete that even grain offerings to God were impossible. <laughs> this locust invasion has come through, and he looks at it and he says, There's huge, there's a judgment has come, and so much so you can't even worship the Lord properly. But that's not the end of the book. Joel uses the locust invasion as the starting point of his sermon. As bad as the locust plague was, it would pale in comparison with what God is about to bring, about, bring upon his people. An army from the north would come to attack the nation, leaving behind devastation even more complete than that of the locusts. The only hope for Joel's hearers heart was heartfelt repentance before that terrible day arrived. That's what we're looking at here. So now let's get into some of these details that we've talked about. And let me remind you again, there are messages here for us. Clearly, there's messages here for us. But I am trying to give you the the resources and and the opportunity to really engage with this book. And, And as I went back through my chart and my outline, as I went through this, this book is one of the most simple books to see exactly what's going on. You can do this. If you've been wondering and you're just taking notes and just going, oh man, I'm a little scared. Joel, three chapters, jump in. Do this on your own this week. So let's talk about who this is. <laughs> and some of these answers for Joel is we just don't know. Um, we, we know very little about the prophet Joel. We know his name means Yahweh, Yahweh is God. Beyond a few personal details in the book itself, we know very little. 
We literally have one verse about him in the Old Testament. He was the son of Pithuel, which means persuaded by God. He preached to the people of Judah, we know that, and he referenced Jerusalem quite often in the book. He also addressed several of his comments to the nation about the priests and the temple. So he's basically very interested in the worship that's going on in, in, in this place. Like he has said, this locust plague has come by. You don't even have the resources to make offerings to the Lord. Joel often drew upon natural imagery, the sun, the moon, the grass, the locusts. And in general, Joel, Joel is very practical and straightforward. That's all, all we know of him. I, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm reaching as far as I can to give you something about Joel. <laughs> we basically know this guy was a prophet and he prophesied these messages. That's really what we know. Everything else I'm, I'm kind of drawing by implication. Who's the audience of Joel? It's not clear either <laughs> in the book. Um, he's likely preaching to the inhabitants of the southern kingdom of Judah at a point early or midway into the divided kingdom, perhaps both before uh, perhaps before both the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions. However, some scholars date him much later as part of the post-exilic prophets and assume he's looking backward at both of those, at both a literal locust invasion and the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions that he's saying these things have already happened. And then he is looking far into the future to say that rock is going to keep skipping. Um, here's, here's the issue. Dating the writing of Joel is very difficult because of the lack of clear historical references. He's either one of the earliest prophets in about 835 BC, or he's one of the later ones writing sometime just after the exile around 586 BC. Interestingly, and here's the issue, he mentions no kings which can be explained by one of two reasons, either by the presence of a child king who had no real influence, Jotham, or by the fact that the reign of the kings had been brought to an end. So he's either very early because there's this one season where um, a child king reigns for a period of time. Maybe he's prophesying during that time. That's what uh, um, most conservative scholars take that point of view. But it may be that he doesn't mention any kings because the Assyrians and the Babylonians have already invaded and there's no more kings for them to to deal with. Um, We don't really know exactly when it is. Chuck Swindoll makes this case, though. He says this. One of the most compelling arguments for dating the writing of the book of Joel explains the omission by suggesting the prophecy occurred in the aftermath of Judah's only ruling queen, Athaliah. Her young grandson, Joash, that was his name, Joash, succeeded Athaliah upon her death. But because Joash was too young to rule, the priest Jehoiada ruled in his place until he came of age. So if Joel prophesied during the caretaking period, it would make sense that he missions no official king. So it may be during this period that we can date. The book of Joel also makes ample mention of priests, temple rituals, and nations, such as Phoenicia, Philistia, Egypt, and Edom, that were prominent in the late 9th century BC. If that's the case, the the temple um, means that there's still a temple, but it may be the rebuilt temple. Um, All of this points to a date of approximately 835 BC or soon after, making Joel one of the earliest writing prophets, as well as a contemporary of the prophet Elisha. Now, one of the things, if you've looked at the Bible Project video, which I encourage you to to read, they will talk about how Joel quotes a lot of other prophets. (laughs) It may actually be the other way around that the other prophets are quoting Joel. We don't know who's quoting who, but we do know that there's a lot of material that is similar in all of this. So um, Joel may be late. He's probably early. Um, There's another scholar who is the one who wrote the period on the historical background of this this, um, time period, um, who's going to make an argument for a different time frame. 
Um, Richard Patterson says this, although God had abundantly blessed the Judah of Uzziah's day, the people had taken God and his blessings for granted. Faith had degenerated into an empty formalism and will soon degenerate into outright apostasy. Moreover, Judah's social practice is becoming one of moral decadence. Two things I want to mention. Number one, I never got to study under this guy, but I wish I would have. This guy's class would have been so fun. Just the smile on his face. I think he would have, he's glad to be there, and I think I'd have been glad to be there too. The second comment, a little more um, relevant, is this. He's making the case that this is in a very um, downward spiral part of their history because the consequences are getting worse. And I think there's some validity there. So why was Joel written? Joel seems to have been prompted into his prophetic ministry by witnessing an unparalleled locust plague, which he uses as a symbol of a coming military invasion, which brings to a culmination God's discipline on the nation. However, this is followed by a pouring out of God's spirit, resulting in spiritual renewal and eventually full justice on the Lord's enemies. Um, He sees this locust plague and it gets his mind rolling under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say God's doing something, God's up to something. And prophetically, he then is inspired to say, yes, and there's invasions coming. But that's not the end of the story. Um, I'm going to make a proposal. And there's a couple of people who agree with me. Not everybody does. I'm not on totally an island. But I do think it's possible that Joel was very familiar with the Palestinian covenant. I'm going to give you some details of it in just a minute. And he was a contemporary of Elijah. He would have been aware of the sequence of God's discipline. He had already seen drought and famine because under Elijah and Elisha, that was common, droughts and famine. Now the locust plague may have prompted him to continue the sequence under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying there's drought, (laughs) there's famine, there's devastation with the locusts, and there's going to be an army invasion in your near future. The reason I say that is because both in Leviticus... And in Deuteronomy, the sequence of God's discipline on the people is the same. The Palestinian covenant says this, obedience brings blessing, disobedience brings discipline, and repentance brings restoration. Under that central section, discipline brings disobedience, both in the Leviticus 26 version of it and the Deuteronomy 28 to 30 version of it, the sequence is the same. You're defeated by your enemies. Then there's going to be drought, wild beasts, devastation, and then finally deportation at the hands of um, invading armies. It may be that he has seen the drought. Now the locust plague makes him say, this is the devastation that is the next step. And if we're not repenting, the thing that's happening is an invasion of the armies. It may be that he is saying, God didn't get your attention when uh, the Amorites and the Phoenicians came in and defeated us. He didn't get your attention when there was a drought. He didn't get your attention when, because of the drought, the wild beasts were looking and they were roaming the land. Now he's seen this devastation of a locust plague, and he's saying, it's continuing to get worse. And eventually God's going to kick us out of the land. That's my question. What will it take for God to get our attention? That we will call out to him and draw near to him. That we will um, get out of our, our comfort zones. Um, so how is, how is all this, this done? Let me get into some, some details of this. How is Joel organized? There's this prologue. It just simply says, Joel, the son of Pithuel. That's really all we know. 
Then he's going to say there's judgment of invasion through a locust and judgment of invasion through an army. Then he's going to say, but that's not the end. God's going to restore everything when his spirit comes on his people. But during that time, they're also going to be the judgment of the nations who have mistreated God's people, and God will rescue his people by judging the nations. Now, on the chart that's out there, you you can see I've got this locust, and that's judgment number one is the locust. Judgment number two is the army invasion. Then there's the restoration when the spirit is poured out. And then there's judgment on the nations who have mistreated them. So you basically have a locust, you have an army, then you have um, the pouring out of the spirit of the Lord and blessing, and then you're going to get um, justice where God's enemies are dealt with. Now, that's the flow of this book. But I want you to notice something if you look at the chart. At the very bottom at the end, there are two things. God is a gracious Savior and a covenant keeper. It's the character of God. Folks, it's not so much the sequencing. God's probably not going to send locusts to your house. There's probably not going to be an invading army in your lifetime in Conway, Arkansas. But the principles are skipping through time for God's people. And the question is, will you really trust in this covenant-keeping, gracious Savior God who's trying to get your attention so that you will draw near to him? That's how the book is flowing. So what's the message? Joel, using the figure of a recent locust plague, prophesied that there will be a future, both near and far, invasion of the land by a devastating army as part of the day of the Lord as it skips through time which includes both judgment and blessing in fulfillment of covenant promises in order to call the nation to return to the Lord which, with repentant hearts, which would result in restoration and blessing under the covenant. The near invasions are Assyria and Babylon. But that's going to happen again with the Greeks and the Romans. It's going to happen again with the Germans. Um, it's going to happen numerous times, and we don't know when the final plunk is going to happen. But we know that this principle is true throughout the whole book. There's this locust plague. Listen to this. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, um, other locusts have eaten. Um, it sounds like there's just a bunch of locusts, right? <laughs> okay. Um, I'm not interested in you understanding anything on this slide. All I'm trying to show you is there's four words for locusts, and we don't know how to translate them. All the English translations translate them differently. Okay. Point. There's four different words for locusts. Whatever's going on is bad news. It's debated whether the Hebrew terms describe different species of locusts or similar similar insects, describe different developmental stages of the same species, or they're just virtual synonyms. We don't really know what's going on. It's just four different words that the invasion of these animals is coming. Now, I know we have grasshoppers, we've got uh, cicadas, we've got all these things. Locusts are a different breed of thing, okay? Uh, on the left up there, there's a, that's a locust invasion. This is what we're talking about here. That's a locust invasion. That picture is from Somalia four years ago. Um, 
the other picture on the right-hand side is kind of a close-up of them. I, I couldn't resist putting this picture up there. I love this picture. The, the one dude in the middle is dive-bombing. I love that locust. I don't know what his deal is, but he has been sent by the Lord, and he's judging somebody, okay? I love this guy. But the other thing that I think is fascinating is, is there on the, on the left, you see one of the locusts is standing up, and it looks like an army invasion, doesn't it? I mean, you can see what is going on in, in Joel's mind as he's thinking, hey, this locust invasion is coming. And it, it reminds him, and there's going to be an army that's going to come as well. And, and when he says this, he calls for the response, the obvious response to the locust plague. He says, wake up, lament, be ashamed, mourn, acknowledge, and cry for help. That's right. If you were experiencing this, that's the, that, that is the obvious response. If God is sending that, he's trying to get your attention, How is God trying to get my attention? How is God trying to get your attention? How is God trying to get our attention so that we will not be so um, complacent and, and feeling like, okay, we're doing all the right things, but we're not really being his people, representing him really well in the Lord, uh, in, in the world, and, and, and being evangelistic and sharing the message of the good news of God's gracious, Savior, covenant-keeping nature with people. He's going to go on and say the day of the Lord is coming. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Basically, this is gathering everybody together. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Listen to him describe it. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large, mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times or ever will be in ages to come. That description is probably the eschatological invasion that's taking place. But he's trying to get their attention and say, hey, everybody pay attention to this. By the way, if you think this message is harsh, just wait till next week. Amos is really bad. <laughs> he's going to tell them, but return to the Lord. You even now, because God is gracious, even now, declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping and mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning is return to the Lord. Now return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Maybe he will relent and there'll be enough that you can gather that you could worship the Lord again. Because of his character. He's going to tell them, blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and a bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep uh, between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they, um, why should they among the people say, where is their God? Do people know your God by how you live? Are you living in such a way that people know you're living to represent God? Or do they look at you and go, hey, where's your God? What's he doing for you lately? Return to the Lord. 
And, and he says, I'm going to pour out my spirit. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. On all mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. This is partially fulfilled. One of the skips along the way takes place in the book of Acts. Listen to what Peter says. Then Peter stood up with the 11. This is Acts chapter 2. Raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servant, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I I will show wonders in the heavens above and in signs in the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you see all of the, the mixture of... God's spirit poured out blessing. Um, They're making God known, but there's judgment that's coming. And yet in the middle of all that, the gracious God says, whoever calls upon him will be saved. And Jesus is inaugurating this new, this covenant blessing, but it's not the plunk. What happens in Acts chapter two is a skip. The promise of the coming of the Spirit in Joel is a perfect example of how the new covenant has been inaugurated but not completely fulfilled by Jesus. He inaugurated the covenant at the Last Supper. He called the covenant that we're going to remember today in the Lord's Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood. However, it's not been fulfilled. It's only been started. The blessing of the Spirit has been poured out, has not been poured out on all people. Joel says it's going to be poured out on all people. Only those who believe in him now. This is going to be poured out on all flesh. This is still future. But what Jesus has done is he's given us a taste. He's given us the opportunity to participate in this eschatological fulfillment of time in the future. The day of the Lord, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And then Judah is going to be restored. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortune of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. He's going to bring them into the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then he's going to bring them into this place called the valley of decision. I grew up in a church where people uh, in the invitation were always, we're here in the valley of decision. You know what? We're not making the decision. God's making the decision of how badly he's going to judge people. (laughs) You don't want to be in the valley of decision, by the way. Make your decision. (laughs) But you don't want to be in the valley of decision because God's the one who's making the judgments there. And the final hope at the end of the book is God rescuing Judah. And listen to exactly what he says. This is a great description of it. The Lord is a refuge for his people. In the midst of this day of the Lord, he's a refuge. He's a protector for his people. He's a provider for his people, and he's an avenger for his people. That's how the book ends. This gracious, covenant-keeping, refuge, protector, provider, avenging God is asking you to come back to him. So what do we do with all this? (laughs) Um... Remember this, the day of the Lord is skipping through time. 
The prophets use this phrase to refer to a time in the future, either near or far, when Yahweh will intervene into human history in a dramatic and decisive way to bring about his plan, including both judgment and blessings and salvation. That's what's going on here. And that's skipping through time. And we don't know when the last plunk is going to happen. The day of the Lord is, is moving through. And, and there's a movable you in here. By the way, I used, I, when I first came across this phrase, the movable you, I thought, that's perfect. That's great. And then I realized it sounds good to me because in Greek, there's this thing called a movable knee, a new. It's an end that can, end can move around in the Greek language, and it's called movable new. And I thought, everybody knows movable new. If you know Greek, you know movable new. But go with me. There's a movable you in the day of the Lord. <laughs> it was you of Joel's time. It was you of Daniel's time. It was you of Ezekiel's time. It was you of Malachi's time. It's you of Jesus's time. It's you today. The day of the Lord is here. Will it be a day of judgment where he's trying to get your attention? Or will it be a day where you have turned back to him and you've found your refuge and your protection and your salvation in this gracious God? So where does all of this fit? Three chapters. Oh my gosh, this thing is so full. Joel is a reminder that God does not forget or fudge on his covenant promises. They will be fulfilled to the letter. He said back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that it will be defeat, drought, um, beasts, devastation, and then deportation. And that's exactly what happened. God fulfilled it perfectly. God will fulfill his promises. Joel provides a clear picture of the discipline of God's people and the judgment of his enemies. See, this is the gracious thing. If you're an enemy of God, it's just judgment from you. It is nothing but dark, gloom judgment. But if you're one of his people, he's calling you back to him. Joel reiterates the participation in covenant blessing and fulfillment of God's covenant promises comes only through the working of the Holy Spirit. This is only going to happen when the Holy Spirit is poured out. There are some things that are happening in the world today that can only happen because of the Holy Spirit. I was listening to something recently um, at a bookshop in Jerusalem. Um, a Jewish army general came into this bookshop looking for New Testaments in Arabic because the people in the prison camps, the only thing that could calm them down was reading the New Testament. So the Jewish the Israeli army is buying New Testaments for their prisoners. That's nobody's strategy. That's the movement of the Spirit. Nobody cooked that up. The, 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 the bookshop owner said this. He said, can I pay for them? And the guy said, no, nope, the army has to pay for them. Okay. The Israeli army is buying New Testaments, not because they want to. They're just trying to soothe them. But they're getting the gospel into the hands of their prisoners. What should we believe? The Lord is serious about sin and its consequences. That, that's the repeated message of these books. The Lord fulfills his promises literally and completely. It, any kind of spiritual fulfillments, um, folks, this, this happens literally. The Lord will pour out his spirit in order to bring about his plan to completion. We're not smart enough. We're never going to get our act together. It's only when he moves that this happens. Will you let him move? Will you cooperate with his movement? And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you call back, he's compassionate, he's gracious, he's covenant-keeping. He will be there for you. So turn from your sin and repent before the consequences get any more severe. What will it take 
to get you to turn. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's your only hope. Call on the name of the Lord because that's where we can go. So what I feel like I want to ask you to do, repent, believe, and trust. Repent in order to avoid judgment and discipline getting any worse. Believe that God is faithful to do everything he promises. And trust him with your very life.